You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. We have a very special anniversary today. And I know we just did our 100th episode and everyone's like, well, didn't we just have a big party? We're having another big party today. What's wrong with multiple parties? Mm. (laughs) We're going to have all the parties. We are celebrating our two-year anniversary today, which is wild. I have no idea how we got to two Mm -hmm. years. It feels like we just started this. I disagree. Oh, okay, fine. (laughs) I feel like it's been way longer than two years. (laughs) And I disagree with the both of you. I think it's a sufficient... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Exactly the right number of years. Yes. was the age of our podcast. Well, regardless of how we feel about it, we are we are in fact two years old with this episode, which is very exciting. And we thank everyone for their support and their feedback and for, I don't know, joining us on our little journey. Garbage man is here. I'm gonna protect the homestead. And we have some special guests, aka our pets today. Was that mine or yours? That, I don't have a dog. <laughs> that was totally yours, Rachel. That was totally you. Got my noise canceling headphones on. All right. <laughs> oh. I'm out. <laughs> the dog is going upstairs and getting locked in the bedroom. Uh, okay. and she was only well, here if she could be good. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> we are celebrating our two-year anniversary today. It is super exciting for us, and we have an all-hands-on-deck episode for you today, which means we're all taking a great moment in Lutheran history, some snapshots Mm -hmm. of some of our favorite things, and we're taking a walk backwards through history and highlight four very special moments in Lutheran lady history. Mm -hmm. Super-duper exciting. Mm -hmm. So, without further ado, Bree, you are on deck first. Nice. Awesome. I'll try and I'll try to set the bar low, guys. <laughs> be a problem. So the year was 1991. It was a year of dancing with wolves, <laughs> ending the Soviet Union, Sonic the Hedgehog, Clarence Thomas, Hurricane Bob, Ren and Stimpy, Pete and Pete, and Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Tale as old as time. Tale as old as time. I feel like it's sort of mediocre so far. <laughs> I'm getting to that because okay. perhaps the best thing about 1991 was that what would become a popular syndicated radio program that spanned 20 years was born. Hmm. And Ooh. that is Woman to Woman with Phyllis Wallace. Yes. Awesome. Oh. So I, I'm not going to say that I'm like celebrity adjacent. But (laughs) I sort of have a personal tie to Phyllis's story simply by the fact that she attended the church that I went to as a child, Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. I remember her being quite involved on a congregational level. A press release on LHM Lutheran Hour Ministries website mentions that she led a weekly Bible study for more than 100 women from a variety of church backgrounds at Good Shepherd hmm. and I that's that sounds right. I don't <laughs> I don't know the I mean I was what 5 years old at the time. So I don't know the extent but she was a name that that came up quite often when talking about congregational related activities. Phyllis's involvement at the church and previous vocations, I feel, really prepared her to form and host Woman to Woman and to do so very well and successfully. And obviously, after 20 years, I like that. That just goes to show the quality of broadcasting that went into it. Before Woman to Woman, she was an author, a family counselor an educator and keynote speaker. And actually her little known fact, maybe, maybe not, maybe it's, I am just learning this for the first time. Her work (laughs) with youth addicted to drugs was recognized by the governor of Illinois. Wow. Yeah. So she was, she did it. She was doing it. She was doing the most. And so just to give you a little brief history, some key dates, the show woman to woman, aired on our very own 
AM 850 KFUO beginning in 1991. Nice. Yeah. Yep. We started it. That was us. <laughs> in 1993, Lutheran Hour Ministries picked up the program and expanded it to 400 stations in syndication. Oh, Ooh, wow. that's a lot of stations. That's yeah. a lot of stations, a lot of viewers or listeners, I guess. Um, <laughs> huge, huge impact, national if not mm -hmm. on a global level. I can't even imagine what it would look like now with the rise of like podcasting and, and digital radio and streaming and all of that. Um, but maybe we'll get to that in a minute. The program ended in 2011, two whole decades later, wow. um, upon Phyllis's retirement from the show. Do you, any of you have any familiarity with the show? Maybe no. The name sounds familiar. Okay. That's about it for I me. I just okay. remember, I mean, it, all of my interaction with like KFUO and such was when we would drive through St. Louis on the way to my grandparents' house in Southwest Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I do, I, I mean, I remember the sound of it. I just mm. don't remember much about it. Woman to woman. That was like me. Was I it really? Think? Maybe, maybe not. Um, yeah, I don't. I, yes, yes. I feel like I should know about it because I now work for KFUO and I am a woman. However, today uh, is your day to learn. Yes. 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 So to just give you a little rundown of what the show is, is what the show is. <laughs> it was billed as talk for today's woman as well as talk you can trust. So Phyllis is quoted as um, talking about her goal with the show as being to inform, inspire, transform, and set fire to the hearts of women to apply God's very practical, loving genius to the demands of everyday life. God adds the extra to the ordinary, and this show is about how that works in a very practical day-to-day -day sense. Hmm. That sounds so, kind of similar. Well, yeah. yeah. So I'm doing some little research on the program. Um, the programming was not unlike our very own programming <laughs> on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. Like I'm a little scared that we're plagiarizing right now. I'm surprised that Everything nobody has said anything. <laughs> so one of the, the so the the sort of the key to her show was inviting experts on to address relevant topics. And this is Lutheran lady related. I mean, it's it, it ran the gamut. So hmm. like a few of the things that she brought up, I, I don't think are topics that we would ever have envisioned touching upon. So she had, she had shows on brain chemistry's role in stress and anxiety, feminism, Christian traditions and history, adoption awareness, navigating life and increasing intimacy as a married couple, time management, the 2008 mortgage crisis, like it just, oh. it goes on and on and like, um, digestive health. Dig <laughs> <laughs> I listened um, to that. Me too. <laughs> we did do an episode on social media in 2011, like when, oh, man. like during 2011 oh. Facebook, which I would just be really fascinated to listen to. And I think all of the episodes from 2008 to 2011, I believe, are archived on the Woman to Woman website, which probably hasn't been updated in many, many years. But I think you can also go to Lutheran Hour Ministries website and listen to the archives of those. Yeah, so I, it, it ran the gamut. She had a whole lot of celebrities, actually, that came on the show. Um, show guests included the likes of Peanuts creator Charles Schultz, what? Art Linkletter, Lynn Cheney, Betty Ford, Dom DeLuise, who is, I think, one of the most underrated animators in the history of time. Suze, Suze Orman. Is it Suze Orman? I think it's Susie. Oh, Susie. Susie. Yeah. The, isn't she She's the like financial? She's like a financial expert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So she yeah. was on periodically. Um, Her reach is a bit beyond ours at yes, this point. Absolutely. But maybe we have room to grow. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but... And here's here is where I'm feeling wistful uh, and hopeful for uh -huh. our own show is she had 
Grammy Award-winning artist, Amy Grant, <gasps> on her show one wow. time at Christmas. <gasps> what? <gasps> Christmas? Tender Tennessee? Yes. That is Christmas. <laughs> Christmas Amy Grant is the uh, best version of Amy Grant. It, you're absolutely right. What? A joy. Hashtag mm. podcast goals. That is a, I mean, that is a hashtag podcast goal. If anybody in Lutheran Ladies Lounge land has connections to Amy right. Grant, that's true. That's true. We'd love to know. Yep. So her scope was was far wider. You're absolutely right in terms of topics and guests, but also here. Okay, so here is where here is where the similarities continue oh yes um, she, I like this. she shared recipe cards on the woman to woman website the most recent recipe shared i think is like ham ham loaf i believe is one of the most recent uh, nice. contributions to that section of mm. the website she hosted a book club <gasps> what <laughs> Are we basically Marvelous. are we basically the same show? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Her I show sounds too. awesome. Yeah. If it, it does sound awesome. If it means that we get Christmas time, Amy Grant, I'm fine with this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is total podcast goals. Oh, total <laughs> podcast goals. This is what I want for my life. Absolutely. Lutheran Hour Ministries posted tribute to Phyllis on March 25th, 2020, the day after she died. Um, they described her as upbeat with candidly refreshing enthusiasm and a thankfulness to God for the opportunities and platform she was given to tell others about Jesus through the show. And man, what a woman to like sit at the feet of for like radio excellence and brilliance. I, for one, am glad to follow in her footsteps and sort of take the up the mantle of Lutheran lady radio and I'm thank I'm thankful for her story and for her her work in the church. So mm -hmm. that's my that's my little moment. Great moments in Lutheran lady history is paying tribute to Phyllis Wallace. May she rest in peace. The sainted mm. Phyllis Wallace, woman to woman, woman to woman. I think that's <laughs> I do think that's the jingle. I think I'm <laughs> about I that. I love it. That, that is very cool. Christmas time. Very. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Now that I've heard the description of her show, yeah, I'm okay with being similar to yes, her. Absolutely. And may we, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge, have much success, maybe for 20 years. Who wow. Knows? That would be wild. That would. Aaron's Although like, I felt like 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. I don't think we can book Charles Schultz or Art Link Letter, but I don't think we would either because all our mm. guests are pretty That's much ladies. True. So, yep. Except for Father's Day. Yeah, exactly. Yep. We've got the few occasional The tone zone. I love that. <laughs> okay. So for my segment, we are going further back in history and talking about the crock pot. Yes. Oh, yeah. Classic. Now, let's just get this out of the way from the beginning. It was not invented by a Lutheran lady. I was really um, hoping it was. It wasn't. it wasn't. However, I don't think anyone can deny the impact that the crockpot mm. has had on Lutheran ladies, particularly connected with a potluck. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but uh, even outside the potluck, the the crockpot is a pretty it's a pretty essential part of the Lutheran lady kitchen arsenal. Mm -hmm. It's true. So I have. It's not, this is not going to be a full on trivia quiz, but I do have a question for you guys. Do you know, I have, I actually have two, two questions. So first question, do you know when it debuted? So if we're going back in time, it yeah. was before 1991. Before 1991. <laughs> I recuse myself. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah, I know. So, so yeah, I will also say I got most of this information from an article that will link but I'm adding pithy commentary to try and, you know. As one does. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll, we'll include the link uh, in the show notes. Was it, was, was it in the 70s? I'm going to say, I'm going to say earlier than that. I'm going to say 19, when was electricity invented? <laughs> God. Well invented. before 1990. 
electricity creation when he created the world. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Like 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 lassoing it for home use. Like of course not the early Thomas Edison. Because I'm going to say like 1943. Okay. Okay. I'm going to say 1943. Yeah. So I asked, I asked my friends this question last night as well, and we got a wide range of answers there also. The correct answer is indeed the 70s, specifically oh, yeah. 1971. Really? I know. Nice. I also, I would have guessed the 50s. Yeah. That's when I yeah. personally would have guessed, but it was the 70s. Now, here is one more question for you. The original name of the Crock-Pot when it was invented is the Beanery. What? What market would someone invent a bean cooker for? Any guesses? Bostonians. It's a good guess. Hey. Uh, I was going to say the South. Oh, the, the South. Okay. I don't know. Completely different <laughs> geographical location. <laughs> Rachel, are you recruiting? Re, re, no, I don't. I don't remember this, from one. this one. Um, as well? okay. Cowboys. Yeah, cowboys. Cowboys, <laughs> cowboys in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> Electrical appliance. <laughs> Excuse oh, me, while I find a place to plug this in in the Wild West in the seventies. <laughs> That's why they I had to rebrand. The 70s are probably a lot more accustomed to modern luxuries than the 1970s cowboys. That's true. <laughs> okay. Any other guesses? No. Okay. It was invented to cook a classic Jewish bean and meat stew. Oh. Because observing the Sabbath means you can't actively uh, cook. Right. So the that makes slow way more sense. Cooker, yeah, the slow cooker allowed observant Jewish families and lovers of beans to enjoy a hot meal on Saturday evening after services were concluded. So they would oh. get it started the night before, before Sabbath began. Oh. Uh, they would start cooking the beans. And then it would just click along slow, slow yeah. cooker, you know. And then after the services were finished, they could enjoy a tasty hot meal. That's awesome. So, but that was a bit too narrow of a market. And so yeah. in 1970, the inventor sold the beanery to Rival, the kitchen company called Rival. Not, yep. not Rival. Well, I mean... Um, <laughs> It was in this case, Ultimately, yeah. Yes. And there it just sat on the shelf for a while collecting dust. But after some time had passed, somebody gave the beanery to Rival's Test Kitchen to see if they could figure out a way to make it profitable. Huh. And there, a lady, Marilyn <laughs> Neal, is the employee. She immediately saw its potential. She was like, this can cook way more than just beans. It's not limited to beans with the name and everything. So this was a career in rival, like, or a, a I guess a position description was the home economist. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, keep wanting, I keep wanting to say home economist, but I don't think it's that. I think it's economist. We know what you mean. <laughs> um, so rival, they have a whole a whole crew of these, I guess. So the rival's home economist took on the task of teaching people how to use this brand new appliance. And of course, there's no social media, right? right. So how can they get the word out about this? Well, they had to write their own recipe books. So they came up with that. First, they had to test it. And I am pleased to tell you, they utilized maximum science <laughs> yes. to do this. Uh, <laughs> so that other ladies, Kathy Moore and Roxanne Weiss, spent hours just testing soups and stews and roasts before they left each day. They would set up, they would do things, they would like set up like eight crock pots, each with a whole chicken in them. And mm. they would measure out all the ingredients started up overnight. And they would have the engineers come in and set up like a thermocouple to monitor the temperature and see Whoa. if it was consistent. And then the next day they would open it up, see how it did evaluate. Is this quality, you know, is this consistent? And then eventually they were ready to launch it. So it launched in 1971 they would include recipes 
in with each crockpot, you got like a recipe book. And they came up with all sorts of different recipes. Some of their disappointments were they were never able to figure out a way to cook pasta mm. or mm. sour cream in the crockpot. Interesting. Um, at least I don't know. And that I was a little p- puzzled by with the with the article. I'm not sure if they were trying to cr- make sour cream or if the issue was they couldn't add the sour cream at the beginning. I think it's the they couldn't add it because I feel like I've remembered seeing recipes where you have to add sour cream After at the, the end. Fact. I think that's oh, it. Um, yes. Oh, and so yeah. I think they were disappointed they could never come up with a way to be able to just add that at the beginning. Mm. Mushy um, pasta and curdled sour cream were their great failures. Yeah, that's a, that's a great yeah. recipe for stroganoff right there. Mm. Yeah, mm. exactly. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> um, some of the classic early recipes include things like busy woman's roast chicken, mm. uh, which Ooh. is basically chicken, carrots, and a package of stovetop stuffing. Okay. Um, <laughs> this one sounds like many a casserole I've had. An entire can of cream of mushroom soup there is, it is used in pork chop abracadabra. Oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> abracadabra. Mm. I love that. What about this one? Bacon, sausage, and ground beef gives you male chauvinist chili. Wow. <laughs> actual recipe that was one of their recipes yes <laughs> i think this is the next iron ladle challenge <laughs> um you don't want to so, do a ham loaf <laughs> no, they, thanks. they did strongly warn there were a couple of things aside from sour cream they couldn't figure out how to wake, make it work but also they strongly warn against cooking a can of sweetened condensed milk mm, in nope. a crock pot hmm. um I did some Googling and it looks like this is actually a relatively common practice. People Mm -hmm. are attempting to make dulce de leche, I believe, Mm -hmm. but you do so at great risk to property and person. Yes. Because it can explode. Yes. Why? Blazing hot sugar spewing all over your kitchen (laughs) and maybe shards of pottery and, you know, metal and glass. Anyway. So what? it doesn't always happen, and that's why it is still a fairly common practice. But they, the ladies of Rivals Test Kitchen, they do not advise it. Um, so why, why does it explode? Because the Pressure. can is sealed. Yeah. Oh, you mean like putting, putting a can? Your, yes. In? So you can oh. it. Yeah, you can put There's it in your other oven. Methods. Yes. There's other methods. Oh. Oven would also be dangerous, I'm certain. But there are other methods. But anyway, they advise do not do it in a crock pot. I was I was um, imagining just like this liquid in the crock pot just magically exploding. Oh yeah, no, 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 that, no. yeah, okay. That, that, <laughs> that makes sense that if you're yeah. confusing. If you're putting uh-huh. a whole can in, yeah, that's yeah, the entire a up, whole can unopened. Yes. Yikes. Maybe yeah. a small water bath. But Do yeah. not try at home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Some other recipes from back in the 70s included ingredients that we don't really see much in the grocery stores these days. Hmm. Things like stuffed beef hearts. Whoa, that sounds. I feel like that would be giant too. What that that sounds how really hard good. That be yeah, I know. I would. Why don't we have stuffed um, beef hearts? I thought you were going to say pimento. <laughs> I would eat a no. stuffed beef heart. Stuffed beef hearts. Y'all are weird. <laughs> I'm glad that aged out. <laughs> Yikes! Hey, if you've never had the heart from a butchered chicken, it's like the best part of the whole chicken. Mm. Hmm. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> what i get for marrying a farm guy anyway continue (laughs) um speaking of chicken parts they don't actually (laughs) specify the chicken heart but chicken livers is Mm -hmm. another recipe ingredient that they featured with some regularity okay so my question for you ladies do do you have a crock pot is that something that your kitchen includes a crock pot i have an instant pot with a slow cooker setting i also have an instant pot I don't. I think we gave away our crock pot when we yeah. moved. Yeah, yeah. I have one. I'm on my second crock pot, mm. um, and it's one of the few gadgets. Uh, you know, I'm not big on gadgets mm-hmm. in the kitchen, but I mm-hmm. do always have a crock pot, and I don't yeah. use it that often. And I right. rarely use it for slow cooking. Like I know women who would put the food in the crock pot in the morning and come back to. Supper. Right. I always think it tastes like cafeteria if I do that. 
but there are some things that well i like i like to get the i like to get the the food mostly cooked on the stove Mm -hmm. and then put it in the crock pot to simmer and finish up so like you know chili baked beans pulled pork Mm -hmm. those sorts the one thing i do love making from scratch and my and it's not from scratch oh my goodness but you know you get your gfs meatballs and you get your gfs can of sauce and you put them in the crock pot together and you leave them for a while. Same thing with the, uh, you know, little smokies little and barbecue sauce. Oh, yeah. I mean, the crock pot <laughs> is perfect for those sorts mm-hmm. of things. Meat plus barbecue sauce. Processed yeah. meat plus yeah. barbecue sauce. So yep. those sorts of things. My father loves his crock pot because he loves to uh, roast a whole chicken or a whole it's his favorite uh-huh. way to slow roast various meats. And I yeah. should do that. I just haven't gotten into it. Mm-hmm. Yet, yeah. so okay. yeah, my I do use a crack pot. It's good for a crowd. I will say mm-hmm. that yeah. mm-hmm. it's great yeah. for those party dips and mm-hmm. things like that. Beyond the oh meat. yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, Ken's, my husband Ken's Velveeta Super Bowl dip Ugh. with the Velveeta, the oh, sausage, yeah, and the, yeah. Uh-huh. only ever done in a crack pot. So we don't use it all the time, but the things we use it for, it's really good for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, my sister-in-law mm-hmm. uses it to make chalupas, which is like pulled pork with beans and cheese mm. and salsa and it was one of my favorite things growing up since we also grew up together it was always a good night when it was chalupa night nice. <laughs> at her house yeah, and she no still way. makes it so that luther can eat it when we go visit them <laughs> but it, it is for feeding a crowd though because they have five kids plus the two of them plus luther that's a lot of mouths so mm-hmm. that is a lot of stomachs yeah mm-hmm. so i think after this you know learning more about the crock pot i think this ought to be a recipe card this winter that we do something that is featuring the crock pot or maybe it's the slow cooker we'll call it the slow cooker and that way i know that the instant pot has had a surge of popularity mm-hmm. in recent mm-hmm. years. Our crock I have, pot away after we I've got refused to pot. get an instant pot because I love my instant pot. Similar to Rachel in that I'm like too many gadgets. However, I do have a I do have a crock pot that's in the in the basement. I pull it out usually once or twice a year because that's about as much. But I feel like I'm feeling the need to cook something in a crock pot and Inspired. probably something a bit old fashioned. So stuffed beef hearts. Yes. Can we do stuffed beef hearts? I think we should find we should find one of those original old crockpot recipe books. And and see what we can find. Massage somebody or whatever. That's right. Somebody in the lounge has one. (laughs) Male chauvinist. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I was I think I was close. I don't know the difference. Oh my goodness. That is busy woman chicken <laughs> hilarious exactly. well i mean this was in the 70s it's like sexual revolution time it so those recipes totally true. make sense <laughs> lady boss chicken yep. we're gonna go in a little bit of a different direction <laughs> for my okay. i'm okay with that for uh-huh. my snapshot in lutheran history and we're going a little bit well actually a lot further back in time so we're gonna go uh back to turn of the century ish and a lot of this actually happens over in India. So we're going international. So I want to bring you the story of Louise Elizabeth Ellerman. So she is the first healthcare worker in Lutheran foreign missions. And her story was highlighted by Concordia Historical Institute. So uh, we can link to that PDF in the show notes and you can read her story as well. She was part of this huge exhibit that uh, CHI had. I think it was last year or the year before. I don't remember. An India exhibit, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Lots of people about missions in India. So she was was part of that. So we'll link to that so you can also read her story and see her picture and all those things. So her story is significant for a couple of reasons. Her ministry was at a medical dispensary in India, which opened up a, a new style of mission work, medical mission work, which is still a huge part of what we do today with our Office of International Mission. But it also meant that missionaries could reach a new demographic group. So her work in India showed how the LCMS could incorporate medical mission work into the proclamation of the gospel on the mission field, because this wasn't part of mission work prior to her going onto the mission field. So male missionaries in the early 1900s in India were not 
allowed to evangelize or speak to women in India. Wow. And specifically a a certain group of women in India. So there was actually this need for women on the mission field in order to talk with these women who were not allowed to talk Hmm. with men. So these women would be nurses uh, to serve in a medical capacity. And several ladies aid, probably Lutheran, associations raised the $600 annual salary to send a nurse to India, which is Hmm. not what a salary is today. $600 annual salary to send a nurse to India. And the first of those nurses was Louise Elizabeth Ellerman. So Louise was born on August 3rd, 1884 in Evansville, Indiana, baptized on August 17th, 1884 at Trinity Lutheran Church in Evansville, and she was also confirmed there on April 3rd, 1898. She attended nursing school, and she graduated as a nurse from Deaconess Hospital in Evansville in the summer of 1907. So from that time in 1907 to 1913, she was making house calls as a nurse for Metropolitan Insurance Company in Evansville. Sounds like a very interesting job. And this is at a time when I guess nurses were still doing house calls. It's not really a thing mm-hmm. for us now either. Um, oh, and then, life. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then on April twenty fourth, nineteen thirteen, Mrs. Zucker raised the six hundred dollars per year from those ladies' societies to send her to India. So she was commissioned. Louise was commissioned on July first, nineteen thirteen, to be sent to Krishnagiri. And she left the U.S. on October 4th. She arrived in Krishnagiri, India, which is in the the southern part of India, if you Google this, uh, the southern part, on November 4th, 1913. And then in December, she went to Kodaikanal to spend several months with Mrs. Gutnecht, uh, who was the wife of a missionary who was there, to begin language training, Tamil language training, which is still a thing our missionaries have to do uh, at the beginning of their service. By March 1914, she had visited several hospitals in Vellore and Madras to learn about the whole culture of Indian medicine and the state of medical care and enough Tamil to be able to provide medical care. Because obviously medical practices in India were going to be very different than what they were in the United States. And these are all, so this is southern India, so in the Tamil Nadu state of India. If you Google all these places she was at, it's in this one state, but that one state is gigantic. So she was still traveling everywhere. On May 10th, 1914, she moved to Amber and started doing house calls, kind of her thing. Um, In August, she traveled to Trivandrum, Nagarcoil, where we still have our seminary there, mm-hmm. and Krishna to visit people and to care for them. So she was becoming very concerned about the treatment specifically of women in India, especially those in the lower castes. Lower caste women were not treated nearly as well as the upper class. And she wanted to give dignity to these women who really didn't have much. So she set about making these makeshift medical dispensaries so she could reach large numbers of people, especially these women of lower castes. So in uh, that summer of 1914, she set up medical dispensaries on verandas of houses and rooms of a house in Krishnagiri so she could treat people. So this was kind of makeshift stuff so that she could really get out and meet all of these people. And then in October and November of that year, this also became a thing. She treated Reverend and Mrs. Guchnecht in Trevernia because they got malaria. So she ended up also serving the missionary families who were Mm. in India because... She was there to be a nurse to people. So by December of that year, 1914, she had a dispensary in Bargor and was still doing extensive house calls. But these were the women who weren't allowed to talk to men and who were secluded in their homes. So she was doing the house calls for these women who were who were secluded, the ones that couldn't talk to the men. But they were really only the higher caste women. And there were other missionary women called Zanana missionaries who were specifically sent to be the missionaries for these women. She kept on visiting them, but her dispensary was much more of her big thing that she was doing. And the dispensary was also accessible to the women of lower classes and also men and children. So she wasn't just reaching women at this point. And then the next year in March, 1915, she did determine that this Zanana work was just not what she was really going to do. 
the nursing dispensaries, particularly the one in Bargo, that's what she was really going to focus her time on. She wanted to move it back to Amber, but the roof had collapsed and there was a plague. So she had to stay put. <laughs> and those two, Amber and Bargo, are about 33 miles apart. I did a lot of Googling because I was really curious how far she was actually traveling in, mm-hmm. what, 1915 India. Mm. So this is a model of mission work that we have today with our Mercy Medical teams, rather than evangelization model of going to visit people in their homes. uh, Louise was able to reach a much wider audience by setting up this dispensary and sharing the gospel to people who came to see her. While people were out on the veranda waiting to be seen by her, they were hearing these sermons and devotions, likely from missionaries in the area. And on the ticket numbers that each patient received, there was a little gospel story on the reverse side. So she was able to to see all of these people, um, also because she was the only medical facility for like 50 miles. So people came from long distances to see her, and she saw upwards of 50 people a day, which I know in our Mercy Medical teams in Africa now, it's like hundreds of people a day Mm -hmm. can be. Mm -hmm. So when you have, you know, the the transportation at, at the time, 50 people was a lot of people for her by herself to be seen. Sure. Sure. Um, And she treated all kinds of things because it was just her with this medical work. Fevers, worms, cataracts, rheumatism, tuberculosis, scorpion stings. Wow. So then from July 1916 to November 1917, she spent six months in Nagarcoil, which is 365 miles south of Bargor on the very southern tip of India um, to care for Mrs. G. Hubner. And this was a common thing for her to travel these hundreds of miles for weeks at a time to care for these missionary families uh, because they needed her as well. By this time in her mission work, she was also recognizing that the evangelization side of what she was doing would be a lot easier for her if there was a missionary nearby. And so Again, she wanted to move her dispensary back close to where a missionary was, Mm. but she couldn't do that just yet. And she also went on another trip to Kodai to spend eight weeks from March to April 1918 to care for people. And then it was time for her furlough. June 1919, she left on a steamer from Colombo, which is now in Sri Lanka, for her furlough in America. She lands in San Francisco on July 16th, 1919. So that was only a month trip, which is not a bad uh, not a bad journey on a steamer at that time. She mm. was in the States for a little over a year, and then she left again for India on December 31st, 1920. The trip back is a little longer. Mm. Uh, <laughs> she got back to Amber, India on February 11th, 1921. And by this point in March, uh, the LCMS had actually sent a doctor Dr. Theodore Duderlein to set up a hospital in Ember. So she wouldn't be the only one doing this medical mission work anymore. So she moved, finally, her dispensary to Ember when she opened it on May 19th, 1921, out of the back of her own bungalow because there wasn't a specific building for her. But that meant that they were able, her and the doctor were able to do this parallel mission work. So hmm. um, she would still have her outpatient medical dispensary to meet all of these people. And Dr. Duderlein would have his inpatient hospital to do the more intensive mission work for various reasons that I don't know because it wasn't in my research in the CHI article. Her relationship with missionaries started to be really conflicted, um, and there were some issues in the community in Ember that, that weren't going very well. So on February 6, 1924, she told the LCMS mission board that she was going to resign at her next furlough in 1926. And the mission board wasn't really happy about that um, and actually didn't accept her resignation at first mm-hmm. because they were like, well, you have all of this, quote unquote, institutional knowledge and all of this knowledge of the people and, and how things work and the new people, the new nurses that are going over to India, it would be really useful to have your knowledge. So, mm-hmm. no, we don't want you to resign. <laughs> They're like, but we'll we'll talk about it when you get back to America on your furlough. So on June 3rd, 1926, Louise left again on a steamer from Colombo. And then after arriving in the U.S., she actually got sick and had to have her tonsils removed Mm -hmm. later that year. And then the next year, in 1927, the mission board did finally accept her resignation. But then, like, two months later, she was like, oh, actually, I can go back. 
It'll be okay. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Come on, um, <laughs> and the board was like, well, cool, um, but you're going to have to do a, a medical examination first. But then in August of 1927, she got engaged <laughs> to oh. Mr. Joe Sunderman, and she wouldn't be able to go back anyway. So she what? did not end up going back to the mission field because she got married. So she married Joe Sunderman in Clarina, Iowa on September 8th, 1927, and started a farming career with him. She was 43 years old at this point. So wow. this this spanned uh, a lot of her... Spanded? Spanded. <laughs> Foot sandals. <laughs> I don't even know what word I was trying to say. Spanned. spanned. Just spanned. Spanned? Spanned. spanned. A lot of her life, this mission work in India. Um, it was such a big part of, of who she was at this point. But she was 43 years old. She was not done with being a nurse yet, however, because World War II was right around, well, sort of around the corner. And she was part of the local Red Cross and served as a nurse during World War II. Wow. So then Louise died in Clarinda, Iowa on January 11th, 1957, at the age of 72 after a very full life of service to others. Mm -hmm. um, and she left this huge legacy of medical mission work and this model of how to reach people with the gospel through this medical mercy work. So that is the story of Louise Ellerman. Very cool. How awesome. I'm loving this episode. I really have. <laughs> really I'm learning so much. Snapshots. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lutheran history. I love it. Okay. Now I got to find my, my notes. And Erin, you work with Mercy Medical Teams. Mm -hmm. Is any of this like familiar to what we do today with our Mercy Medical Teams? There there's certainly parallels. The Mercy Medical Teams don't have the model. Obviously, they're you know they're they're a one time event sort of right. thing. They're, mm -hmm. they're going to be in a location for a week, and then they aren't. And so her model of of having an ongoing location that people could come to uh, definitely does have parallels. I know that they do treat a lot of people, but they also have a number of people that are on the team. But yeah, the I, the whole idea of doing the mercy work in close proximity to the proclamation of the gospel is a key aspect whenever they're planning a Mercy Medical Team event is to one of the, the key things is how, how will this be connected to a local Lutheran church and how right. can that church be involved in the event so that they can be there, you know, meeting with people as they're waiting and encouraging and praying with them following up with them afterwards so that it can really be an, a part of an ongoing ministry, which mm -hmm. which I think her model clearly was was more of that ongoing aspect. Yeah. And yeah. we have several missionary nurses on the field now, too, doing We, do. we have doing one some right ongoing. now. Yeah, we've got... I can no, think of I two. I can think of three. And okay. so that's why I'm like, but I'm like, but, but am I forgetting someone? So I'm going to, I'm not going to name them lest I forget right. somebody. And they're like, <laughs> oh, you got me. Why'd you forget me? And I'm, so anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to stick yeah. with three. You know who you are. Yeah. 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 The I'm legacy continues. You, missionary nurse. You yeah. Okay. Are you guys ready to go yeah. even further yeah. back in time for yes. another great moment? Absolutely. Lutheran uh -huh. lady history. Okay. Picture yeah. the scene. Yeah. Picture the scene. It's about approximately somewhere 1849, 1850 or so. There is a pastor's daughter sitting on the branch of a large ash tree in the parsonage yard. And from that spot on warm summer evenings, she could listen to the twitter of the birds in their nests. She could watch the stars and she is having her theology formed. And she's also writing poetry. I don't know about you, but a lot of uh, young women, perhaps including myself, write what my mother-in-law used to refer to as angry girl songs <laughs> when they're teenagers. Yup. Yup. But the person I have in mind was not writing an angry girl song. She was writing the hymn that we now sing almost without fail on Mother's Day every year, and that is Children of the Heavenly Father. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm trespassing a little bit into Sarah's hymn nerd territory here to tell you the story of our unofficial, but really we should just make it official, you guys. It's time. 
Mother's Day hymn. <laughs> Children of the Heavenly Father by the beloved Swedish Lutheran hymn writer Lena Sandell. Now, I first discovered this story years ago when I was working at Erden's Publishing, which then had charge of the, the scholarly book series, Lutheran Quarterly Books. Hmm. And when I it, the first the first volume to come out when I worked there was Gracia Grindahl's book monograph Lutheran Women Hymn Writers, which hmm. told the stories of six women, mostly pastors' wives and daughters. So this is sort of sort of parsonage literature who had contributed texts to Lutheran hymnody. And the one that stuck out in my mind most at that time and still today is Lena Sandel. Carolina Wilhelmina Sandel, eventually Sandel Berg lived from 1832 to 1903. She was the youngest child of a Lutheran pastor in Sweden. She was considered a frail, sickly child, and from a young age, she preferred hanging out with her dad in his study to playing outside, <laughs> which I love her already. Mm. <laughs> I've got several articles referenced here, which we'll all include in the show notes, but this one came from the uh, UMC Discipleship page or website. Writes her husband, her her husband. No, not her husband. Her father <laughs> was a Lutheran pastor, sympathetic to the growing Pietist movement, and he raised Lena in a faith that emphasized the grace and warmth of God. And at the same time, she received an excellent liberal arts education from her father and brother-in-law, learning to read and write in Swedish, Norwegian, French, German, and English. Makes me feel like quite slouch, right? Mm. Yep. So she was always sort of frail, but when she was 12, she was stripping with partial paralysis Ew. that left her confined to bed much of the time. And though doctors thought she was pretty much hopeless, her parents believed that God would make her well again. And apparently one Sunday morning while her parents were in church, Lena was reading the Bible and praying earnestly. And when her parents came home, they found her walking around, you know, so she was gifted a miraculous healing in some way but we don't know how or but we know that certainly god can work that way not that he always chooses to but it was after this that lena began to write verses expressing her thankfulness to god and she published her first book of spiritual poetry when she was 16. wow she then went on to write over 2,000 hymns in her lifetime She's been called the Fanny Crosby of Sweden. Wow. Um, but she, we don't know exactly when she wrote Children of the Heavenly Father, but it was very likely when she was about 17. Wow. And that scene I painted at the beginning, it's an old tradition in her hometown that is how she wrote this song. And I'm, I'm going to try to avoid saying Swedish words because I'm so bad at it. But <laughs> the, the song is Shigare kan ingen vara, uh, Children of the Heavenly Father, as we know it. Now, Sarah, as you have often pointed out during your hymn sing episodes, great hymn writers often come with tragic backstories. Yeah. And I'm afraid dear Carolina Wilhelmina Sandel was no exception. Her, this faithful woman whose loving relationship with her own earthly father taught her so much about God's love for her children lost both her parents before she was 30. Oh. Wow. And her father's death was especially traumatic. She was 26 when she was accompanying her father on a boat trip across Lake Vettern, during which he fell overboard and drowned in her presence. Oh. Yeah. That's terrible. So, but even though she had written many hymn texts before this, after this, she wrote even more. Mm -hmm. And the hymns reflect a very tender, childlike, desperate trust in her savior and a sense of his loving presence in her life. Even she she did get married, so she became Lena Sandel Berg, but even her marriage to businessman Carl Oscar Berg was marred by grief. Her husband's business collapsed oh. and their only child was born stillborn. Oh my goodness. But Horrible. through it all, her faith remained strong. Her hymns flowed, and God used her words as part of a larger religious revival that really swept through Sweden in the mid-1900s. You don't think about Lutheran revivals, but seriously, mm -hmm. if the entire country has sort of strayed towards secularism and enlightenment, rationalism, and all of that, you kind of need a revival. Mm -hmm. um, and you can read more about that, by the way, in Boyertz's The Hammer of God, one of our runners-up for book club in October. It's set in this this same time period and talks huh. looks at the effects both positive and negative of this revival movement on three pastors in one Lutheran parish. I just finished reading it and it is it was a wonderful 
precursor for this story about Lena Sandel. <laughs> her hymns were frequently performed by one of her biggest fans, opera singer Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale. Wow. Yes. Lena Sandel. Sandel. She not only performed her songs, but paid for them to be published. <laughs> um, and according to Evangelical Times, Lind even sang Sandel's hymns not only in concert halls, but in factories throughout Sweden. She would just wow. like, go give performances in factories and sing nice. hymns. That's awesome. So guess how many of Sandel's hundreds, maybe thousands of hymns have been translated into English? One. Uh, maybe maybe five or six. Oh, I mean, wow. if you look at hymnary.org, there uh -huh. are very few. And only two that appear in, you know, more than a couple of hymnals. So the other one is a, a hymn, Day by Day. It has a, a couple of different translations of that same text. How many of her hymns do we have in LSB? One. That's the one. 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 Exactly one. But... If we could only have one, this is a really mm. good one to have. Yeah. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very happy that we have it. Now, it's to be, best. to it's be fair favorite. to the good, <laughs> to be fair to the good people who edited the hymnal, Sandel was a devout Pietist, uh, mm. which is a, a branch of Lutheran theology, but not one that is necessarily wholeheartedly embraced in the LCMS. And not all of her theology could make it easily past LCMS doctrinal review. Yes. <laughs> I found it interesting that like many Scandinavian Lutheran women of her time, she was she was no stranger to what one might call bridal mysticism or what we might also call Jesus is my boyfriend theology. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, maybe there are a few hymns that if we saw them in the hymnal, they'd be a little cringy. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure, I mean, come on, there have got to be some gold nuggets in that treasure chest that we could pull out. I, I wish I knew Swedish so that I could dig in and, and see which Lena Sendell hymns. Because Children of the Heavenly Father is such a good hymn. Mm -hmm. It is sung at baptisms and weddings and funerals. I've sung it as a lullaby to my children. Back when I was helping with hymn planning at my husband's church, it was a guaranteed, like, full voice, four-part harmony, you know, kind of crowd pleaser every time we sang it. And then there's Mother's Day. We always, always sing it on Mother's Day. My husband asked me a few times, wouldn't it be better to sing it on Father's Day because it literally has father <laughs> in the title? True. <laughs> and I said, No. Well, you can't sing it on Father's Day. And then today I was thinking about it and I realized any hymn that has the word bosom in the second line can't go on Father's Day. It has to go on Mother's Day. True. <laughs> uh, argument ended right there. <laughs> did we not sing that today in chapel? We totally did. Did you? Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah. As we celebrate the loving nurture of our mothers, I think it is right to remember that Mother's love doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from God, our Father. And mm. Lena Sandel got that thanks to her own relationship with her Lutheran pastor, father, and Lutheran pastor's wife, mother. And I'm so grateful that she got it. And I'm grateful for her life, for her faith, her creativity, and her lovely little hymn. So, yeah, I... That is our, that is my my submission for great moments in Lutheran lady history is a teenager writing everyone's unofficial but should be official favorite Mother's Day hymn. Nice, I love it. And those those Swedish hymns have a a particular I don't know comforting nature to them too. The, the Swedish tunes they do. Mm -hmm. They're just soothing. Most of her hymns were set to music by the same. She had sort of a creative partner, and I can't remember his name right now, but he wrote the hymn, the tunes for many of her hymns and really mm. respected her as a lyricist and tried to, you know, come up with things that would really, really work. And I think the collaboration was wonderful. So now that we're through, I'm wondering, because this has been a rough week for me, I know this has been a rough week for a couple of us, could we sing it? I know we can't sing it together because there's a terrible lag on my recording, but I wonder if we could each pick a verse to sing and Oh, whoa, there are a lot of, no, one of the four verses that is an LSB. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Children of thy heavenly father, safely in his bosom gather, nestling bird nor star in heaven, such a refuge e'er was given. 
God his own doth tend and nourish, in his holy courts they flourish. From all evil things he spares them, in his mighty arms he bears them. Neither life nor death shall ever from the Lord his children sever. Unto them his grace he showeth, and their sorrows all he knoweth. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. Is the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy? Thanks, you guys. I'm literally crying over here. Oh, I'm literally crying over here in Groton, Groton, crying in Groton, Groton. <laughs> well, that's a pretty spectacular way to end our two-year uh, anniversary episode with a nice little hymn sing, literal hymn sing lullaby for you. So, thanks, ladies. This was super fun. A little walk back through history, snapshots in Lutheran lady history. And friends, if you're not in our Facebook group yet to share in all of these joys that we like to share about in our podcasts, um, make sure you join us on our, in our group, sorry, on our group in Facebook, in our group on Facebook, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. We're also on Instagram. You can follow us there at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. And you can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app or go and download our KFUO radio app and you can find our podcast along with all of the rest of the KFUO radio podcasts on that app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast two-year anniversary edition. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm not crying in Groton. Groton. <laughs> and I am definitely crying in Groton. Groton. <laughs> <laughs>
Children of thy heavenly Father, safely in his bosom gather, nestling bird nor star in heaven, such a refuge e'er was given. God his own doth tend and nourish, in his holy courts they flourish, from all evil things he spares them, in his mighty arms he bears them. Neither life nor death shall ever from the Lord his children sever, unto them his grace he showeth, and their sorrows all he knoweth. Oh, he giveth, or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. I don't remember the last Oh, I'm words. sorry. <laughs> I, I thought just, I could do it. I'm sorry. Is the loving purpose only to preserve pure and holy? Aaron, do your verse again, <laughs> please. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was, I I was like mesmerized. And then I lost it. Okay. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. Is the loving purpose solely to preserve them? Pure and holy.